Something else I wanted to really make sure we we got into here was this. I want to throw this at you, and we haven't really covered this aspect of it yet, so maybe you guys will have some some thoughts on it, but it's kind of where America was and what the America the film is representing kind of represents both historically and eternally, like moving forward, the fear of where our country could end up that this movie taps into because it's depicting a world on the brink of sliding into chaos. That vibe and the setting is universal in the sense that it could represent any country, any time, any place where society is in decline, like Rome, for example, in the eternal cycle of rise and fall growth and decay the movie takes place at the cusp of the apocalypse or at least anarchy. And it's funny because Mike has brought up Mad Max and, uh, you know, the sequels a couple of times road warrior. And I've always thought of the original Mad Max as being fairly analogous to this movie. If a few miles down the road, proverbially, because the United States of the early 70s was in the midst of a really dark and uncertain time. I mean, just a quick recap. You had Watergate. You had Jimmy Carter's national malaise. You had stagflation, gasoline shortages, which comes up in the movie. Uh, You had the Vietnam War going on, which was a quagmire. You had the Cold War still going on with Russia. And like Mad Max, Texas Chainsaw makes no attempt to reassure the audience that order can be restored at the end of the movie. I think a lot of these slashers end on a hopeful note. At least they suggest that the killer is always a disaffected loner, a a lone wolf, a madman operating in a sane world. But Texas Chainsaw is a dystopian film. I think the implication of this movie is whether you want to blame Saturn being in retrograde or something more earthbound, that the idea is that the world's problem is bigger than the Sawyer family. They're just a symptom of something much larger, more systemic, more intractable. And as Mike mentioned earlier, when Sally escapes at the end of the movie, she leaves an unbroken and unbowed leather face behind. The implication to me is that order will not be restored. She has not won. Society has not won. I read this ending as a draw. None of the problems that the movie has presented the audience with have been solved. And the Sally who leaves this movie is not stronger, wiser, better. She's broken. She's clearly unhinged. The movie suggests that when we say goodbye to Sally, 
she's as insane as the Sawyers are. She's more like them now than she is like the young woman that we met at the beginning of the movie. So I don't know how you read this as anything but a pitch black ending. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I will say that uh, Sally, you know, going back to the idea of the opener asylum as crafted by Kim Hagel, uh, you know, Sally is drawn into their world. She's drawn into the asylum of the Sawyers. It's clear that the the stress of dealing with them has affected her mind. Her mind is broken at the end of it. But it's also really interesting that uh, they're so close to civilization. It's not a post-apocalyptic movie. It's very much an off-the-beaten-path movie because uh, within running distance of the Sawyer's front door, there is a road and on that road, there is a guy in a pickup truck, and he does the civilized thing. He sees a girl who's in trouble, and he stops and lets her get in, and he saves her, this random guy. And we, we never see that, dude. We never thank him for his efforts, but, and she only survives due to the fact that the civility of a random person doing the right thing. And that truck and that guy exists within a stone's throw of the Sawyer's front door. And let's also remind ourselves that like they they encounter the Sawyer's in the first place because the house is right next door to the abandoned family house. You know, it's like there is only one step backwards for this family. So I, I, I understand that we like, you know, we can endlessly go down the screenwriter MFA thesis paper road of like Ameri- Americana and, you know, descending civilization xyz and that's that's that but i i'm always struck by the guy who saves her at the end he could have just kept going he didn't he was a good good guy just driving by oh girl in trouble getting you know get in darling that's it you know so she survives thanks to civilization civility which is within reach they're very close that's a good Anyways, point. That's, that's a good point. That's a very good um, rejoinder. Uh, Rich, I see you're muted right now, but um, I'd like to hear your perspective. There are two things that we've touched on. Like One of them is that this is happening on the outer limits. You know, as, as Mike pointed out, like they're not in Austin anymore. These people have traveled out into the outer realms, into the badlands of Texas. And so to view that as a read on the state of the world at large has gone mad feels a little incongruous to me. You know, I mean, I agree. I mean, I don't know. I feel like you're kind of making two different points. Like one of them is about like you're talking about the the actual like balance in the in the order of things and, and talking about like the way that the film ends. But then you're also talking about like its commentary on like sort of the world at, at large, like. I, I don't feel like the commentary of the world at large is quite as is reading quite as well to me. Definitely the world is out of balance, but I'd also say that whether it's intentional or not, this film's emphasis on the astrological or astronomical, you know, effects of like the, the sun and, and the horoscopes and, and everything that's involved in that also makes that by nature, like cyclical. I mean, that's exactly what like, a, you know, like astrology is, right? Is, I mean, well, at least my understanding of it 
is yes. that things get worse and things get better. Like there's an ebb and flow to the to the tide. And so it's like, like you said, this is a very bad day. This is the day where everything that could go wrong went wrong. It's not necessarily supposed to be representative of a trajectory of our culture moving forward. This is like the day that like everyone had a bad day, including Leatherface. Yeah, this this isn't the road. This isn't the purge. This is uh, this is why I bring up the idea of a fairy tale. They're going down a road. They take a wrong turn, so to speak. Uh, they go to the wrong place and they meet up with the wrong people. But in order to escape from those people, all they have to do is like run out to the road. There's a passing guy right there. They can get their asses back to Austin relatively easily. I think that um, it's specific to Texas, not only in terms of the, the, the characters that we meet, but also that it is such a huge state that you can have these vast uh, expanses of wasteland that um, you can have like giant cities, uh, the epitome of civilization, but you also have, you know, a crazy bunch of uh, grave robbing cannibals out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, they're right there, man. They're running the gas station. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to throw it to Vic, but, don't forget, I want to draw your attention to the radio reports at the beginning of the movie. And if you listen at all or read the subtitles, which is the great thing about the, the, the age we live in today, you can see that every single one of the news stories that this movie begins with are horrible. And they are increasingly horrible. And I, I don't think that's an accident. It's not like they weren't using real news reports the the point of it was to show that the world was going crazy. That yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with that. I'm, okay. I'm just saying it's like I, I you know this is uh, I I wouldn't put this in the same category as the purge or whatever. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it, the road where it's like it very clearly we're like we're on the cusp of a post apocalyptic you know X Y Z. I uh, I you you would have to see more of the larger world in order to draw a direct line to mad, the first mad max. That one is very clear because I, our protagonist is part of the police department and the police department is like falling apart. We see scenes at in mad max at the police department where it's, it's, it's basically like three goofy guys are the cops now. And that's all that we have between this and anarchy on the roads. And so I, uh, even though you, you would have, roving guys and there is a sense of cannibalism and uh the the later uh mad max movies but you know we're uh texas chainsaw massacre is like okay this is a bad, bad place this is a bad time but i wouldn't go so far as to say that's like well we're we're seeing like the early days of the apocalypse it's, well we're it, somewhat it, 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 it's something else we're somewhat splitting hairs because uh, yeah i'm not saying Toby Hooper thought that by 1977 we would be in Mad Max or or something like that, but I am saying <laughs> I am saying that like the radio reports go on to suggest that the sheriff of this Muerto County has no idea who's committing these crimes and is just making up stuff like oh it's some jewel thieves from. California. I'm not even joking. I'm pretty sure that's what he says who's responsible. So the idea is that the law enforcement in this area is absolutely clueless 
and or corrupt because how could he have any real evidence that would point to what he's saying? He's just saying, oh, don't worry. These aren't Texans doing this shit, which is another one of the things that Hooper has acknowledged, which was, you know, he's talking about cover-ups and you can't believe what the government is telling you and it's all bullshit. So, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. I, I don't want to overstate it that I think that this is like truly an apocalyptic film so much as I'm saying that this is a movie that's pointing out that critical institutions, family, law enforcement, economy, all of those things are deteriorating. And this is kind of what you get. That's all. John, what interests me about your, the, the way you let off the question to me is the, the sort of specific, the specificity of what was happening in America at the time and the fact that this was – we've talked about it. I've, I've talked about it gener- generationally, but it's also like the city kids, the hippies, the young kids coming into what they perceive to be you know, real America, right? Like it's – this is – we talked about uh, the Southern Gothic idea, which is the same thing. The people coming from the north, the people coming from the cities come into the south where things have fallen apart and collapsed and they've been oblivious to it, right? Because they've been in the areas that are prosperous and they've been ignorant of the places where things are going badly. And that creates an internal conflict in this country that we've seen over and over and over again. Again, this is the basis for for, uh, the Southern Gothic. It's what we see here. It's people coming from whatever the the metropolitan version of America is into this other America that exists right alongside it, but that they know nothing about. And the idea to me is that the America they're coming into used to be great and it's fallen apart. And so now you get this conflict between those two ideas. And I think that's why this movie continues to be relevant because that idea of the old and the new coming into conflict in America that used to be great meeting in America that thinks that everything's great now. Um, geez, I don't, I don't see anything sort of in the modern era that relates yeah. to that. Right? Well, that's it. I, that's it. Cause I think this movie is more relevant than ever. And I, I, that's the last point I wanted to make about, about this was that in a way, this movie is like a Halloween or Friday the 13th in which Michael or Jason aren't just like the lone cancer cell in a healthy body. It would be more like Haddonfield and Crystal Lake are the disease and incurable diseases at that. Because the Texas of this of Chainsaw represents not only one state, but the United States as a whole, a country that's past its prime. It had its day in the sun. Everyone had jobs. Even the weirdos would get paid to kill cattle in the slaughterhouse, and, and they didn't have to go out and kill kids on the road. But but now things are different. <laughs> no, I mean... They didn't have to dig up corpses out of the graveyard to express themselves creatively. They could have used, uh, you know, the arts and craft supplies at the uh, at the community center. Well, they had a socially acceptable vehicle for these, you know, this part of their life, uh, their desires, and so on. And 
anyway, like the idea is that the country had its day in the sun. Now it's in decay, but you know, the movie came out in 74. Things got a lot better for us in this country after that low point, but I still don't think the movie is ever going to be irrelevant because every time I see Mad Max, like whether I saw it in 85, 95, 2005, or if I see it in 2025, I'm going to feel like we're never that far away from things going south to such a degree that the nightmare that this movie immerses us in, or especially that movie, I see Mike's point. This movie's not not quite Mad Max, but... I'm just saying, like, right now, comparing the U.S. To, to the U.S. of the 70s, we have inflation, we have recession, we have political instability, we have COVID, we have a cold war or a hot war with Russia and maybe China, we have climate change, we have gun violence, et cetera, et cetera. We have all of these sort of things creating the possibility for chaos. And I think this movie basically is saying... If you know, if you go down that that untraveled path, you might find that the problems that the country is sweeping under the rug are there waiting for you. Here is the thing, too: is the characters through which this story is told are some of the. You know, I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier with the family dynamics, but nobody in this feels like a character in a screenplay. They're all like deeply organic. They're really, really human. I would say in almost any other screenplay that you could, almost any other screenwriter, almost any other movie version of this story, Franklin would be uh, a paragon of of humanity. I said that. Yeah. Or you know, especially like you know, Stephen King wrote this. He would be like this really nice guy. He's the smartest guy. And, you know, he's the heart of the group and, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's deeply human and real. And I would say uh, courageous, artistically speaking, to make him a really unctuous character. <laughs> it's like, I so agree with you. <laughs> I, 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 of the many favorite moments that I have in this movie is when they go wandering off and they leave him alone and he feels left out. And, uh, it's very human. It's really hard not to laugh at that character, even though we understand like where he's coming from, what's going on with him and his emotions and his soul. Uh, and I don't love it when he gets a chainsaw through the chest, but you know, there aren't a whole lot of in wheelchairs getting murdered in slasher movies. Uh, there isn't a deep bench of that. And uh, we're really talking about Franklin in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, um, well, it's not yeah. Chainsaw, but the guy in part two of uh, Friday the 13th, right? And I, I've mentioned in our previous podcast about Friday the 13th, I am deeply on that guy's side. Yeah. Every time I watch yeah. two, I am really rooting for him. And even though it becomes like kind of one of the bravura kill, kills of that franchise, to the extent that they put it in every kind of catching mm-hmm. up montage at the beginning of the movies, they always put him in there because it's such a great stunt. It's such a great effect. Da, 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 da. But if we're talking about character work, I'm always on that character side because he's, he's gung ho. He's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get over this. I'm going to figure it out. You know, I'm going to work hard. I do it. I, yep, he gets laid the entire thing. Well, he's like, the anti Franklin. He's the opposite of yeah. Franklin. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly <laughs> that. It, it's like if you t- put Shelly from three in a wheelchair and then cranked him up to uh, Kim and then ran him through the Kim Henkel filter. That's Franklin. <laughs> I think that's what Vic or either Vic or Rich said that in our, in our deep dive. Yeah, it was Vic. Yeah. That, uh, I, I love Franklin because, uh, his, is you know, just his personality is, is deeply entertaining to me as is his death. <laughs> Cause it's the only explicit, uh, chainsaw death in the entire movie. That's right. I believe everyone else gets a mallet. And by the way, Mike, I would suggest, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but that Leatherface might be so big that it looks like a mallet in his hand. But to you or I, that would be like the full hammer. That would be a sledgehammer. Uh, I, I would. I, I understand where you're coming from because uh-huh. uh, I, I, is it Gunnar Hansen in the yeah. first movie? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, he is such a large man that it would. But I, I, I've spent a summer swinging a twenty-two pound sledgehammer, and yeah, th- that's a two-handed weapon. That, uh, yeah, even in any large hand, man's hands, it's not going to be, you know, mistaken for a ball peen hammer. It's 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 a big tool. Uh, it's definitely a mallet. Okay. Um, okay. I believe but, you. Yeah. I mean, I'm just asking because he's a large yeah. man. He's a large guy. He's the big man. <laughs> okay, He's well, big man. <laughs> He's kind of a big baby as well. But uh, putting that aside, <laughs> no, he's a wonderfully like uh, we we could talk at, at length about Leatherface and how the fact that um, he has an inner life that these killers don't have, and he's really more you know sort of bullied but loyal family member than than you know something more pathologically traditionally psychotic but putting all that aside does anyone else have any like big ideas they want to throw out because for me i have like some fun facts and you know things gleaned from commentaries and stuff that might take us in different directions but it's probably going to be you know we're we're shrinking the the focus down to to smaller aspects of this movie does anyone have any other big picture thoughts they want to get out there i do have some some stuff i wanted to talk about in terms of the film's release okay yeah Um, great just because i i feel that's sort of interesting but it's not big thematic ideas no Um, go for it but i'm happy to dive into that i so here's what happened and this is this has been driving me nuts because i've been all week working on this so Fifteen years ago, when I saw this at the Egyptian, John, with you, but I'm sure I must have talked about it with a, a friend at work, the company I was working with at the time. Somebody sent me an article that I believe was written by Joe Bob Briggs that was like the detailed history of the making of and release of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I have not been able to find it, and it's hard for me to believe in this era of digital uh, uh, stuff that such a thing would just disappear. And I look for it every which way I never found it. Uh, I, I think you're, I think you're right actually Vic, because I know that was like the film he cares the most about. And I know he wrote a lot for like, you know, regional newspapers and stuff like that. And that is the kind of thing that can actually slip through the cracks sometimes on the internet. So I would not be surprised at all. 
it was a it was a great it was a great truly comprehensive piece, and that's part of why I sort of sought it out. Instead, I sort of cobbled together from a bunch of shit uh, some information just because the release of this film is so bizarre. And so, just so you know, this movie was released by a company called Bryanston Films. And the head of Bryanston Films was a guy named Louis Butchie Pirano, uh, <laughs> who was affiliated with New York's Colombo crime, fam- uh, crime family. Okay? This mm-hmm. was the company that financed Deep Throat. Okay? Right. So on a sub-$50,000 budget, they strong-armed theaters into giving them an unfair cut of the ticket sales. This is on Deep Throat. They threatened physical violence and burned down a theater or two for non-compliance. Okay? Wow. So it was... As one does <laughs> in the mob. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right? So naturally, Deep Throat sold out everywhere it played. It grossed at least $100 million and maybe as much as, much as $600 million. Okay? Nobody really knows because the mob was the one with all the receipts on a $50,000 budget. And so one of the things they did with that money was release the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is also enormously profitable. And, of course, nobody saw any of the money from it. The the filmmakers and, and I mean, everybody, because everybody was working for back end, right? Yes. So, so nobody It's Mike's worst money. nightmare. They, tried to, <laughs> they, they wanted to sue, and all the lawyers in New York were like, eh, these guys are in the mafia, so maybe you shouldn't sue them. Uh, I was, I was going to say, like, the only story I'm hearing here is that these were great producers. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Good point. They got the job done. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what I, so what I loved, this is what I dug up. They, 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 again, everything was in court. Bryanston went out of business. They everybody got arrested for because the FBI started targeting them when they they sort of thought that people were going to be distributing porn films all over the world. So they literally arrested a bunch of people uh, involved in this case for transporting pornography across state lines. Eventually, it was released overseas. Lots of stuff happened. I love this. So when all was settled between the their three parties sort of involved in this. Uh, and this was a lot of this had to do with the uh, foreign distribution. But the, the basically the parties involved received $10,000. They agreed to pay $800 each to cover legal costs. That means the cast and crew ultimately collected $361 in profit from foreign distribution. And then I just because this is the my, my favorite uh, detail in 1981. Texas Chainsaw Massacre had earned more than $6 million at the American box office, according to the current distribution company, New Line. But after attorneys and investors had been paid, the profits received from the filmmakers for the worldwide distribution amounted to $45,000. And the distribution company, at a certain point, the legal shit got so, like, like nuts that the, the investors who had originally invested in the film changed the name of their investment company to Trail of Tears because they were so disheartened at trying to get paid 
for, wow. <laughs> for the money that, that the movie had made. So, yes, it's wild to me that nobody, none of the people involved with this got the certainly the money they, they deserved and earned from it. The mob is directly involved in its distribution and why none of them got paid. Uh, it just it's it's everything about the production of this film and its its ultimate release and and everything else. I mean, eventually everything wound up uh, again at New Line, who who sort of paid everybody a little bit of money to go away. It was a fucking mess. It sounds like it was a nightmare, um, which may be also indicative of America. I think you know, so. It's funny, like a nightmare to shoot, uh, a nightmare to recoup. Ah! <laughs> Suddenly, uh, sorry, uh, listeners, Mike has um, returned with a very disturbing mask. Happy Halloween, Mike. <laughs> Nobody cares who I was until I put on the mask. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is quite, quite fucking creepy, I, I will say. Damn. Uh, <laughs> this this uh, story that you're telling, Vic, is very, very similar to Night of the Living Dead, and it seems kind of endemic to the independent, you know, cinema world where people are very much beholden to distributors because you can make the best movie you want if nobody's going to book it in theaters and pay for prints and all that, you're screwed back in the, you know, especially the 20th century. And, and, and that's how these things happen. I'm surprised the evil dead people didn't get fucked. I mean, I guess the dentists were nice who paid for their movie, but I'm pretty sure their distributor was kind of shady as well. In, in any event. Yeah, that's, it's a sad story, especially given how hard the movie was to make. And then like, it was that hard to even make a dime off of it. All right. Well, um, this is the first fun fact I want to throw out from Hooper's commentary. And this sort of blows my mind. Maybe you guys won't, won't make anything of it. But, you know, just given how many times I've seen Poltergeist in the last five or six years, another Toby Hooper film, and, you know, listen to thoughts about the curse and the idea that, you know, we all know, of course, how many untimely deaths were associated with Poltergeist. And the basic idea was that they used real skeletons for that, you know, the infamous Act 3 sequence where all the graves are bursting from the ground and coffins are popping open and these skeletons are pouring out. Well... The idea was that, uh, and this is touched on in Return of the Living Dead 2 and elsewhere, that you could get these skeletons from India for a variety of purposes, usually educational purposes. And it was cheaper. Well, yeah, usually. usually. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes entertainment purposes. But you could, you, you could obtain real skeletons and then dress them up. And it would be cheaper than fabricating you know, out of fiberglass or whatever you were going to be doing, like creating realistic looking skeletons. So they used them in movies and they used them in, in, in this film. So 
like the the things at the beginning with the monument and the art installation those were real skeletons and elsewhere in the film but there's no curse associated with this film that i'm aware of there's not any uh untimely deaths that i'm aware of uh obviously a lot of the people involved with the film are now dead in late 2022 when we record this but uh that not you know it all seems pretty pretty natural so i did find it kind of funny that there's these two toby hooper movies that use skeletons from india and one of them has this you know elaborate mythology about uh, heather o'rourke and the other daughter and you know people uh, mishaps and curses and death and stuff like that and meanwhile texas chainsaw was you know the exact same situation well, I think we know the real reason for that. The Spielberg directed mm. Poltergeist. It's Spielberg, isn't it? And yeah. he drew off the he even inflicted the cursedness upon Poltergeist, whereas uh, Toby Hooper is, uh, you know, uh, a talisman against it. I can get behind and, and that. Truly, and truly, Spielberg has been cursed every ever since. <laughs> yes, you know, from, from Poltergeist on, it's been nothing but a downhill for that poor guy. You know, just one, one promising filmmaker, too. one one mishap after the it next, just derailed you know, his right. career. I saw him holding a sign next to the the I ten on ramp the other day. It's like you know <laughs> that poor guy. Imagine he wants directed batteries not included, and you think oh, how is the money falling? <laughs> I think, I think he just produced batteries not included, actually. It's but. true, actually. <laughs> Thank you, Vic. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Um, on to the next one. So, originally, the John Larroquette opening crawl and sun flares sequence transitioned into the eye of a dead dog. They filmed it, edited it, all of that, and Hooper actually thought it was too unsettling and that's why he changed it to this roadkill armadillo. And he, he, was, he said, you just can't do that. The eye looked more human than a human. I can see how a dog, a dead dog, is really beyond the, the pale a little bit, especially for a film that is professing to be sort of like a, a commentary on like meat and like the, the treatment of, um, of both like human and, and inhuman creatures. I know that the armadillo itself was like is is like a taxidermized armadillo, um, and so not like a, a fresh kill. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting take that that was like crossing a line for him. Uh, I think the the this guy I, I want to say his name is Bob Burns. It's definitely Burns. He uh, the production designer, art director. You know, like he created most of the ghoulish shit in this movie. So he gets a ton of credit for that. The ambiance of the house and the skin lamps and the, the, the chicken table centerpiece in the middle of the dinner table and all that. But, uh, he did find that armadillo dead and he taxidermied it himself. So I don't know where that fits into the spectrum of how creepy or gross it is, but, um, yes, it's taxidermied, but he didn't buy it from a taxidermist. He did it himself. Well, armadillos are rodent. <laughs> That's different. True. 
Yeah, no, I, of course. The dog would have been infinitely more disturbing, I think. Even if you're not a dog lover. You know. but the, like, what, what does it say about us as a society and the way that we value life? Like I say that all the time on these on these horror boards that people are like, you can you can you can do anything to human beings. You can even kill children. But like if I see a dog die in a horror film, I'm out. Well, you know? I, like we, weirdly enough, I, I, I realize that you're you're doing something funny with that that thought. But it is the impetus behind what the Sawyers are up to, where it's just like uh, we can you know, we can eat cows and chickens and goats all fucking day and no no one bats an eye it will even make a joke about but you know uh horses dogs cats oh no no, those are our friendly animals we're not you know you you do anything to them and suddenly it's a crime against uh uh morality where we're gonna lose our minds don't do anything to the cute little puppy but you can do anything you want to the cute little calf that's fine the cute little goat eat that fucking thing you know, and so it is that mentality of like, uh, oh, well, what about the, the cute hippie chick who's driving by? You know, it's that one little leap where it's like everybody agrees that this is good and that's bad. And then our antagonists go, eh, no, that's good, too. And isn't it funny that, that, that people are proud of the fact like they would love to proclaim the fact, even though they don't really know what they're saying, that uh, I would rather... Like they're basically saying it, it for them, it would be better to eat your own kind and to murder, butcher and eat human beings than to hurt a dog. So they're basically saying it's not that unthinkable to them to do those things. It's certainly less unthinkable than it would be to hurt a dog. So yeah. I'm just saying that's all very arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, you you could say that. Well, a human being is uh, an adult human being has a certain degree of sin, and in some way, shape, or form, uh, might deserve violence. Uh, whereas an animal is innocent; it doesn't deserve anything. But you say, well, how how is a calf more sinful than a puppy? Right. I'll tell you what, guys. Let, right. Let's get together. Let Let's make a movie called The Texas Puppy Massacre, <laughs> and it's just going to be ninety minutes. Of a family of psychos murdering puppies, and we'll see what the audience response is. To that <laughs> will 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 it start a franchise that is remade by New Line? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like if you really kind of dig into the ramifications of that, that that people already are proud to say they would rather at least watch human beings be murdered and eaten than a dog. What does that say about like the, 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 the ease, ease of this barrier being broken, uh, that prevents us from hurting each other or treating other human beings like cattle. Those dog people are already halfway there (laughs) in a sense, because they're, they already know what they think is more offensive or, or disturbing or wrong. I just think it's interesting that the filmmakers themselves drew that line, right? Mm-hmm. Like, not even the audiences. Like, just even Toby Hooper was like, ah, not the dogs. <laughs> I, I do want to, again... 
fine, but not dogs. His his quote was more human than a human. And I don't think he's giving Rob Zombie lyrics or song titles there so much as saying that the the hauntingness of the dog's eye was too much and and in that it it was like just filming a real human corpse's eye. So he, that's where he was coming from. Not necessarily that we love dogs so much. Guy, says the guy who used real corpses. Skeletons. Skeletons. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Skeletons. Yeah. weak. Yeah. Listen, man, I've got real pug, pig guts in death metal. Nice. I got them from the butcher shop. Yeah, pigs are fine. We've covered this. Pigs are totally right. cool. Yeah. So um, here's another little tidbit for you. Not only was Leatherface kept apart from the rest of the cast until it was time to shoot their scenes together, Paul Partain, who played Franklin, was as well, at least from the other kids. And Hooper encouraged him not to wash his clothes. And Partain has said that he felt he had to go method and be Franklin for the entire shoot in order to maintain the character. And all of these factors helped to create the palpable energy of an unwelcome outsider that Franklin has in relation to the other characters. Gunnar Hansen said he did see Paul Partain off camera, and he said, I quote, the man that I absolutely hated because he was so into his character was Franklin. I never saw him out of that wheelchair, and he whined all the time. He was... <laughs> he was... <laughs> yeah. yeah if, if the goal was to create a uh, believable outsider who was unable to fit in with any other polite acting society, I'd say he succeeded on every level. And whatever Tony Hipper did to contribute to that, uh, it worked. Yes. He's so great. And Gunner went on to say, he was the one person I was really happy to kill because I knew he would be off the set at that point. (laughs) 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 I love that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that, that is one of the uh, main benefits of making horror movies is you murder these characters. And so you can send the actors away. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you can production wrap them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it does speak to, we've talked about this in the, in the deep, the deep dive that he's like the only character that stands out. I mean, Sally has certainly Sally stands out uh, and especially sort of her transition by the end of it. But we all sort of talked about how bland and almost interchangeable the rest of the characters are in that van. Yeah. He gives he gives a real he gives a real performance. Like it's if you're annoyed by him, you're supposed to be. So yeah, it's I, I do sort of admire it more and more the the as as I've watched the film. Yeah, weirdly enough, uh he is I am you know, going to the open air asylum, you know, thought process. Uh, he's like the member of that little crew that that weirdly enough like plugs into the uh, the setting that they're going to. I mean, he he doesn't in the sense that he's immobile with the uh, you know the terrain literally, but um, he's like everybody else that they encounter a big obnoxious personality. 
I I think he feels the the vestigial identity of the family of the Sawyers. Like I I think he could be like in another world, another time, another place. I think he would have been just fine being a Sawyer. Like he yeah, still he, understands uh, his cousin, right? Brother. So, uh, he might be a yeah, brother. Uh, so he might be a little closer to the family that moved away. Yeah. You know, they have this house that's right next to the Sawyer house, you know, I, you know, right next to you in, in quotes because it's rural Texas. But, um, you know, they, there is an alternate reality version in which Sally's family never moves away, and she and Franklin are digging up courses along with their good friends, the Sawyers next door. And I think Franklin would be totally fine with that. Like, even this Franklin still has a fascination with it and a desire. Like, he and the Hitchhiker are really kind of vibing, I think. Like, it goes yeah. south. Yeah. But... They they are kind of connecting in that in that right. van scene, and I think he has a genuine appreciation for a lot of the stuff that the hitchhiker is talking about and that the family exemplifies. And I think the hitchhiker sees that in him, and that's why he feels kind of betrayed by Franklin because he thought he thought they were you know like oh you know maybe I don't I don't meet a lot of people kindred spirits or anything but I think he saw a real interest and appreciation in Franklin at first Franklin thought that y'all means all but he learned that that's not always the case it's not always the case (laughs) (laughs) you were you were almost about to write a tagline Mike but I, know. I don't think you made it there. <laughs> I, you, you, you throw the darts and sometimes they land. <laughs> <laughs> the difference between screenwriting and marketing. You know? <laughs> so a little earlier in the movie, uh, when Leatherface hits Kirk in the head with the hammer, uh, all in one shot, uh, you may notice that he actually makes contact with the guy's, the actor, Bill Vale's head. It's a rubber hammer, but uh, apparently it, it, it left a good mark on, on the dude's eye because uh, Gunner really hit him. So it, it, sell, it sells the moment. It helps sell the moment. And also, um, when Pam, Terry McMinn, is in that large uh, freezer... Hooper put actual dry ice in the freezer so that it was really cold in there for the actress. Guys, have have you observed this in the wild? I was at the grocery store the other day, and the guy in front of me in the line was buying dry ice, and he had to show his ID. Mm, Interesting. Have you guys seen this? No? It must be yeah, in the yeah, ingredient of uh, methamphetamines, maybe? I think uh, that there's yeah. a danger. I, I, yeah, I've, I've been through mm-hmm. this before. I think you can use it for other purposes. That must be the rationale. That's interesting. Which is really too bad, because you know I was going to, for Halloween, buy a block of dry ice and put my tongue on it to see what would happen. And I lost my ID, so I guess I can't do that anymore. Oh, so, shit. Halloween is ruined. I've cut too many holes in Charlie Brown's ghost costume. <laughs> I've got rocks in my paper bag. 
Um, if, if used in poorly ventilated situations, it can cause asphyxiation. Uh, That's okay. the danger. Okay. That's it, huh? Uh, Accepted. Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder if you could do like kind of an autoerotic asphyxiation kind of a deal. Yes. But, oh, 100%. Uh, yeah. Rich, I'm glad I came to you, man. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> Dude, instantly right on the button. It's, yeah. 100%, man. Of course you can. <laughs> Better than any other method. Yeah, David Carradine could tell you all about it, but. Chris did say he's been through this situation. Listen, man. So, I've, yeah. got, I've got some dark webs. What, <laughs> I've got some dark web sites I could send you to. It, it's a thing, man. <laughs> So here's another one for you. Um, Jerry, the actor, gives kind of a high-pitched scream when he sees Leatherface for the first time. And that was not rehearsed, and he had never seen Gunnar Hansen, or let alone Gunnar Hansen, in the mask before. So that was his legitimate first reaction to this dude showing up, bursting out of nowhere, and swinging a hammer at him. Uh, and, and again, I think that that, that pays off, you know, Toby Hooper is contriving these situations to get close to an authentic reaction out of the actors and to create that signature. I don't know if you call it a sting, but you know, the sound effect we always associate with this movie, he would hit a large tuning fork on his knee uh, Hooper this is as he said he did it himself and he would lower it onto the string of like a broken instrument with a contact mic on below below it and then he would put that recording through a series of Sony tape recorders one after another sort of re- each recording the last tape recorders recording and that would create this weird reverb and he would speed it up and slow it down and he said there's no way to do it vi- digitally like it could only be done that. in this analog way. Dude, yeah. the sound design on this film is one of the you know of the many wonderful elements of this movie. Is sound design is and score is fucking incredible. It's uh, you know, it, it's it's almost a lost art, man. It's like uh, you know, uh, you look at Night of the Living Dead, the sequence where the girl is chopping up her mom with a trowel. Uh, that audio sequence is fucking brilliant it's so good and it's used to be such a bravura aspect of the genre and um we kind of sort of get it like a little bit here and there i'm trying to reach it but i mean that's like one of my goals in my career is to to recapture that kind of business let's get weird sounds and like wendy carlos on the shining Mm -hmm. carpenter inventing an entire fucking musical genre (laughs) you know it's like it's horror is like 95% sound. Well, and how much time did we spend talking about the score on black Christmas? Black Christmas. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. This non-traditional atonal score. Yeah. Yeah. There's a place in horror for like the strings. You want, sure. you want a class to join up Bernard wanna... Herman. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. There, there, there's also definitely a place for like throwing fucking chicken bones at a symbol, you know? I love that shit. Yeah. And and Texas Texas Chainsaw Massacre exemplifies that stuff. I I do love, yeah, these atypical scores. Well, and I'm sure when we get to Friday the 13th, we're, part two, we're going to talk a lot about Harry Manfredini and 
which is not the same type of unusual score, but and still, I think very unusual and very different. It's probably going to be a through line across all of these slasher films that we're talking about. Yeah, that'll be interesting because I do think it's somewhat in the middle there because there's very traditional elements, but then also more, you know, primal, simple, atonal things that, that, yeah, aren't like spooky music. There's definitely like an organic uh, through line that I think you can see through something like Black Christmas and, and this and... Um, and even like the, the sort of like the iconic Friday theme, right? Like there's something very analog and like created by people, which is interesting because you contrast that to, to someone like what, like what you're saying with like Carpenter, who's like really taking like sort of like, you know, syncopated and, and synthesized scores and using that to like push it to the next level. Like I'd I'd argue that that's actually pushing in a very different direction, than what these movies are doing. Mm -hmm. I agree Um, with that, yeah. But at the same time, it's like so stripped down. Yeah, different, but at the same time, uh, equally effective, just in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. And crucial to the the success of all four of those films. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that that music can inform a, a sequence or a montage and give it, give it, an energy that just the raw images don't have. And yeah. I think we see that time and time again in this genre, but you can see it I just, I, cross film. I can't, I can't tell you one note of the score from the conjuring. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> that is a good point. I, th- there, there, there is a uh, thought process behind uh, the nightmare box approach to scoring where you just have like a box full of like weird shit and you just kind of like make sounds and I you know, basically trying to ape what uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre did in the first place uh, and I, I think that that kind of thing has a place but you want at some point in time uh, a backbone of a, a, a musical theme Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm saying this at the same time that, like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't have any kind of musical theme. It is like you know, just these found sounds, and I think that it exactly matches the visual. Where it's like, especially when she goes into the art room and she's looking at like the chicken feathers and the bones and everything else, and the sounds that you're getting out of that. I mean, it, it would be bizarre if like Kubrick like put like Beethoven's Fifth or that kind of thing. It, it like it only matches when you're like throwing, like I said, you're like throwing like chicken bones on a symbol or like rowing shit for like a an old tape recorder. You know, that's the only sounds that fit that 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 scene and that set of imagery uh, perfectly in an organic manner. I mean, it's it's so brilliant because it's tapping into the mental state of the characters who created those things and who live there. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We're, we're showing the, uh, by the visuals, the, their living space. I I love that before we show the characters, we show how they live and that's how we learn something about them. Where it's like, who the fuck, what the, what is going on? You know, it's like that's the setup for Leatherface is so great, and that's what it is yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Way before we have a girl springing out of a freezer, we have like the deep. 
I, you know, per sound, ju- just I, I'm sure you guys have touched on this in earlier podcasts, but of the many brilliant oral things that this movie does, it's one of the more perfect examples of using sound to create geography. And I'm talking about the external generator on that house. Yeah, yeah. The way that the generator is used to let us, uh, with sound, know where the characters are, how close they are, and the fact that it is like this very consistent puttering of the generator uh, creates its own source of tension. As we get closer to the house, we get closer to the house, and we cut cut around to other characters, and that it's softer, that quite as close, you know, X, Y, Z. We know where they are geographically. I, you know, show me another movie that uses sound like that to create that geography on, on the same level or, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and it's not like a spooky sound. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's like a very mundane sound, but it's consistent enough. And we know that it's not attached to anything good. (laughs) But that very neutrality is part of what makes it haunting that. Yeah. It's not trying to be scary. You just know what it means. You just know where you are, you know, where they are. Yeah, absolutely. And we're also told that this is a movie called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, like, the puttering of an engine has its own fraught level of, of portent. Indeed. If Indeed. We, if, we're, if we're going to use big words. I like, I like big words, too. Yeah. We got to remember, we got to we got to justify that MFA that I got, Mike. Come on. So, uh, (laughs) all right. Anyways, um, I want to get Mike's opinion on this. We've been talking about this um, and I now have a Toby Hooper quote. So I want everyone to to hear this and, and, and possibly weigh in on it on the cook. Jim Seedow's character whom Hooper uh, confirms was the oldest brother, not a dad or an uncle or whatever. I'm, I'm somewhat paraphrasing, but this is almost a literal quote. He has an inner conflict. He was not quite sure morally where he stood in any one moment. If he tastes blood, he's going to go in the direction of the beast, but he would try to pull himself out of it. Like in this scene, this is, of course, the director's commentary. He's got two personalities. He's poking the hell out of her with the stick in one moment, but then enjoying it, but then pulling himself back out of it to a functional reality. Mike, I definitely thought there was a duality to this character where he's not just pretending to be good or, you know, just to like... Uh, like a sociopath shine her on so that she'll do what, what he wants. I think there is, I, I clearly see a, a conflict in the character uh, moment to moment to moment to moment. <laughs> Vic, do you want to say anything about it? <laughs> Don't trust the teller, trust the tale. That's it. That's all I got. I got nothing. No, I, John, fine. You're right. Okay. Does it feel good? Yeah, it does. Huh? It does. <laughs> I am happy. Right. I don't get yeah. that much on this right. podcast. Some duality to the character. <laughs> he has more moral conscience than his uh, uh, parent brothers. Although I still argue that the sausage he gave uh, Franklin was a dick. <laughs> Uh, you know, the commentary that I listened to with Gunnar Hansen, Gunnar Hansen said, that's a dick in his mouth, right? 
And and Toby Hooper's like Toby Hooper goes, could be. <laughs> so it could be. It could be. All right. Here's another one for you. When Leatherface cuts Sally's finger, he really cuts her finger. The blood tube wasn't working. And as she had said with Jim Seadow, when he was beating her with the broomstick and not really hitting her hard enough, Marilyn Burns goes, just do it. Get it over with. Make it look real. Because she would rather it, it be real and done with than drag out this shoot any longer than they had to. I thought that was I cool. believe that for, for, from what I've read, uh, the shooting of the dinner scene was deeply unpleasant. They, they were shooting day for night and it was like 120 degrees in there and they were covered in, they were drenched in sweat and it stunk. So it was, yeah. I, I, could, I could definitely see her being like, I, I don't, cut off my fucking hand just get me the fuck out of this room (laughs) opinions vary about how long that shooting day was but it's safe to say it was not less than 24 hours it could be 27 it could be 28 but it was definitely at least 24 hours that shooting day that dinner scene Think about and that. That's why we have unions. Boys <laughs> yeah. yeah, but there was no SAG rep on the set that day. Yeah, there, there, there's a pro and a con to that. Yeah, I, you know, the pro is we treat our talent with respect and dignity and pay them well. The con is like you don't get into the really crazy territory that gives you a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I yeah, Gunner said that they were all going insane by the end of that. Like literally, they were out of their heads. And that right. in between takes, he, him included, multiple people would just go puke outside uh, outside of the that room because it was so hot and it stunk like the rotting flesh in that room, all those dead animals yeah. and skins and meat and stuff uh, with that incredible temperature. And th- that brings me to a, a point that I w- wanted to, to mention that Daniel Pearl said they shot on 16 millimeter, but they didn't want it to be too grainy because they knew they wanted to go to theaters. They wanted it to be blown up. Uh, so they used the highest quality film stock that they could get but it was like ASA 25 and that meant it needed a ton of light, like four times the amount of light that a normal film stock would require. And light like artificial light means heat. So you have all of these hot lights in the dead of summer, Texas shoot. It just pushed the temperature so much higher than it. It would have been extremely uncomfortable anyway. So yeah, it was even, hellish. Even a normal, yeah, even a normal film set gets uncomfortably hot very quickly, and especially if you're using like old, like giant Fresnel type lights in like a confined space on an in, independent shoot in, in Texas in the summertime. You know, I, th- that's just you know the fifth circle of hell, man. I you know in film school, I just just to fuck around with it. I once lit a cigarette off of a 5K. I used to, as a PA, I would sit around on set, and you could see the on the 5Ks, the bugs would fly over the lights and go, and just yeah. evaporate. Wow. Yeah, I, mean, I, I got my start as a PA, and then I went to a Grip Electric, and uh, yeah, I mean, they get hot as fuck 
we're not talking about modern LEDs, w- which are relatively tame. I mean, these things were like you—you you were really like kind of getting your hands around the fire of Prometheus with these fucking things. And to be in like a room with them for 24 hours is with rotting meats is insanity. Yeah. Your day for night, it's already a hundred degrees out in Texas. You have five K's and 10 K's and 30 people in like one room shooting for 24 hours. What could go wrong? <laughs> or what with rotting right, meat, <laughs> you get the yeah. Texas chainsaw massacre. Yeah. It's like, yeah. If you want to create insanity, you make insanity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They never shot Leatherface without his mask. People often, you know, wonder, did they think about doing something like that shot at the end of Halloween where you get a glimpse of him? And nope, never did. And I think that's a, 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 a momentous choice. But they did shoot him getting ready, like uh, putting makeup on or changing his wigs or something, and and still didn't uh, end up using that anywhere. One other thing, Hooper, on the absence of blood in the movie, you know, like, what is the rationale? Was he just trying to be classy or what was going on? Apparently, he had been in contact with the MPAA from the beginning and was sort of, you know, trying to suss out what he could get away with and, and what he couldn't and talking about, can I hang a girl on a hook and, and, and so on. And they actually had an outside shot at a PG rating. As you may recall, Jaws in 75 yes. had a PG rating and, you know, yeah. they got away with some shit there. Uh, yeah, so Tommy, Tommy Kittness gets eaten by a shark on screen, yeah. and uh, exactly, there and are limbs in the water. Yeah, and there's that you know that corpse under the in the boat underwater, and right. there's all kinds yeah. of stuff. But so he had a realistic shot at a PG under those circumstances, and that's why the gore is so minimal. And obviously, it's just ultimately far too disturbing to get a PG. So they ended up with an R. But he was like, he definitely did not want an X. He thought that would doom the project uh, financially. So that's why they're so conservative. Is that he was really trying to get the, the most minimal rating he could get away with. Yeah. It, it, but it feels like an X rated movie. Yeah. It, it, it just in a feel, just in a feel like it, it feels like you're filthy, uh, you know, transgressive. You shouldn't be watching this. Uh, you know, that, that, that was the legend behind that movie when I was a kid. I'd imagine that's how it ended up with the R. I mean, like I'm, I'm not a, I'm not going to sit here and defend the MPAA, but I do think like it's all context. Right. It's like that's why Jaws gets the PG is because of the context in which you're seeing the the, the carnage. There's no it way this down. is a PG yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. If you have Roy Scheider as the cook, maybe. <laughs> uh, I would have uh, I would have enjoyed that. All right. Well, uh, one last thing that I have, and then I'll, I'll open it up to you guys, and we'll we'll wrap it up from there. And you know, who knows where the conversation will go. But I think that one of the things that I like about this movie that you can you can sometimes sense with films is when they shoot in sequence. And this movie is largely shot in sequence, and I, I think that it does kind of 
payoff in some ways. Again, like with people hadn't seen Leatherface and the madness of what they put Sally Hardesty, Marilyn Burns through, like it has a very logical build. Um, and what was funny is she thought she was done and then they realized like there was a problem and she had to come back in after they were done and on a separate shooting day, put on that same blood soaked costume and get into the back of the, uh, pickup and, and shoot her crazy crying laughing scene. And she said that it didn't really hurt the performance because it, it's just sort of fit. Like, of course, I'm not really done, but now I really am. So, and she was ah, just, right. you know, so right. she could get, That's she could cool. totally get into the headspace of, of that moment and redo it under right. those circumstances. It does seem like the kind of movie that could be shot relatively in sequence because that I, there is a geographical progression of locations there. You know, you can see your company moves from here to here to here to here. Uh, I don't even know how you would be, you know, uh, well, we're, we're going to shoot in the Sawyer house and then, and then we're going to go shoot in the house with the, the spiders. <laughs> it's like, right. Oh, by yeah, the way, yeah, the spiders, yeah. they, uh, they went, they location scouted. The spiders were there. They came back. Yeah. The spiders were there. They came back again. The spiders were still there. They were like, all right, we're going to use the spiders. You, you have to, it's right. one of the, I, of, of the many favorite shots I have in this. I, I love that we randomly have this giant ball of daddy long legs just yeah. Roy, and we just kind of on that, just roiling. Yeah. Just letting, and, and, and that is the choice that you make where it's just like, this is a horror movie. I'm going to horrify the audience. And that, that always felt like a happy accent. That, that's just like, all right, well, cue spider wrangler. You know, yeah. Like, no, they didn't the, have a guy you know, with like this giant bag of spiders. Okay. I put it right. up there. Cue <laughs> <laughs> spider wrangler. Yeah. <laughs> Can we get more spiders? <laughs> Not enough, Teddy They're spreading out too much. Take two. Yeah. No, yeah. they were just there doing that, which yeah. I think is almost more oh. disturbing. That that is the happy accent. You're letting yeah. the audience know that they are in a weird, gross, disturbing rural place. Something uncanny about it, but but still natural. Like it's it's a very it's an interesting tightrope. It yeah, I like if you just shot like one of them, it would be like oh yeah, that's a daddy along with it's just kind of there. But it's like the fact that those creatures love to like kind of ball up. Yeah, congregate. And, and just kind of like. And, and just kind of like wriggle around on each other. You know, a riding ball of daddy long legs is vastly more disturbing than like, you know, a shot of just like one big tarantula just kind of sitting there. It kind know? of feels uh, like something more out of like Prince of Darkness, maybe. Right. Yeah. You know? it, it feels yeah. like you're watching the murmuration of, 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 of uh, swallows or, you know, it, it feels like they're doing something weird, even though like, they're just doing their nature, but exactly, you know, yeah, yeah. for some <laughs> reason right. that reminded me of, uh, I don't think we, we haven't touched on this recently. The sliding of that steel door after oh, Leatherface. So I mean, good. what a, what a punctuation yeah. that is, yes. you know, it just tells you, holy shit, this is what you're in for. This is what's going on. 
here here's the reason why Franklin would be welcomed within the Sawyer family is because they they put up with Leatherface's foibles. I, they're they're totally mm-hmm. you they they are totally fine with him having his own little space, and he's got bones in there. You can see them on the wall. Uh, a sliding door with metal on it. Yeah, I, I mean, if he wants to wear a mask with uh, a woman's skin on it and a wig, then yeah, I mean, this, yeah, I mean, they're they're the ultimate liber- social libertarians. <laughs> do, yeah, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. <laughs> I do wonder, like the identification with the the female role, the matriarch, or whatever. That Leatherface is is taking on, like no, he he also wears a suit. Yeah, at home, uh, which I also love. I love that detail. The fact that he wears a suit, right, along right, along with that mask. So it isn't a female role. It's uh, hermaphroditic, I guess you could say. It, it, well, it's, it's something above humanity. Well, it is interesting that of all the characters in the family, like Leatherface is also the only one wearing a mask, period. Like Leatherface is the only one who is like literally assuming the persona of other people. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I, the, 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 in a non-gender specific way. Like it's just like he's like literally wearing the faces of other people. And he changes and it up it, like three times in the course of that movie. It, it, the the other two just accept him exactly mm-hmm. as he is. Uh, you know, to accept that, like they'll yell at him. They'll be like, hey, "What are you doing?" You know, it's like it, which I love, but it's also like, you know, um, why are we judging the Sawyers? They don't judge amongst themselves. You know, love is love, man. I mean, come on. He's the uh, low man on the totem pole, though. Clearly, like the older brother is the nominal leader, but he's being challenged constantly by. The rebellious hitchhiker, mm-hmm. uh, who, by the way, is Nubbins, the corpse in the second movie. I think we talked about this, Rich, last time. We, we talked about it briefly, and then yeah, I was I was watching a like a, a recap of it, and someone mentioned again that the hitchhiker is Nubbins. So wait, what's the story? You you figured it out more than I did. Yeah, yeah. So at the beginning of uh, Texas Chainsaw Two. Leatherface like pops up on the top of this van with this sort right. of um, puppeting. He's puppeteering this corpse, and we right. see that corpse a couple of times. That is the hitchhiker's corpse. So he's still kind of part of the family, but um, I don't know where Nubbins comes from. But that's what they refer to him as. I mean, they wouldn't call him hitchhiker, obviously. Like that's stupid. Mm-hmm. So. The the uh, chop top, I don't know where he is. Like he might literally be in Vietnam when the first movie happens. I, I guess that's yeah. our assumption. Yeah. Yes. And then I, he comes home. I I wonder if we could spend the next two and a half hours comparing, contrasting the first two Texas Chainsaw Massacre films to Motel Hell. Uh, Are you guys familiar with that film? Of course, love it. I, I, in fact, uh, Motel Hell, I, I, I would almost say that, you know, Hooper lifted to a certain extent from Motel Hell because Motel Hell came out uh, between the first and second movies. And the first one, you know, he's got like an established brand. People come out to his farm. 
because the sausage was so good. You know, kind of like you know the chili cook-offs with. Uh, oh yeah, two. yeah. I just want to say because because Mike, you really prompted me for this that if they, they, you could create a new tagline for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it would be "Love is love and meat is meat." Oh, that's good. That's really actually, good. That, 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 I, you could have made that the tagline of the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You could. I think I'll, I'll, I would make that the tagline to uh, whatever movie that Julia Roberts makes next. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, going to be my barbecue restaurant. Yeah, I, I, I saw, love it and meat is meat. You know, dude, that is really good. Eat, pray, I'm, kill, cook. Yeah. Oh, no, eat. <laughs> eat. No, yeah, eat, pray, P R E Y, love. Yeah. Oh my eat, God, pray, dude. love. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> dude. It's so good. It's so good. Damn it. All I, right. I, I have two screenplays to write. I can't jump on this. Dude, you're right, like you're that. a busy man. This has been a fertile uh, session for you, brainstorming oh, session. You have no idea. You have no fucking <laughs> Yeah. All right, uh, Rich, final thoughts about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, it's interesting. There's a pretty low level of chainsaw in this movie. And relatively speaking, certainly in the rest of the the genre, there's a pretty minor massacre. And I do want to point out that it's a massacre, not a slaughter, which, (laughs) you know, there's a distinction that they could have made. Right. I don't think it's a, a coincidence that this movie begins with with both like the this like sort of true crime narration and and the photographs and this series of like news stories like in a sense i feel like it really ends on that note in terms of like where it leaves you off in terms of story like it's really meant to be lore it's meant to be this unspeakable series of of events and like to that end like it it really did like it's ironic that it ended up like as lore like it really became almost, you know, a part of like urban legend and not just like in a folk sense, but like in the context of, of cinema. And it's this film whose reputation is sort of more outsized than its actual celluloid footprint. You know, it's like for, for those who like really venture to like watch this film and experience it, it's like, in fact, like much more than the sum of its parts. And that makes it a really notable film in uh, this canon is that like, I think that this film is like more experiential maybe than any of the other four films that we have that are up for um, contention. You know, like it puts itself out there in the opening moments is like the most bizarre crime in the annals of American history. Is that true? Is it the most shocking and most gripping and most human and most engaging of all these slasher films. Like I'm, I'm eager to find out where we land on that. As am I. Vic. I just want to remind our listeners, and I know this is a cliche, but I want to remind them to live in a house with decorations and, and furniture made of bones and human skin, uh, to, to laugh in the back of a pickup truck as they're fleeing uh, from a a chainsaw-wielding serial killer and to love chainsaws (laughs) and human flesh. Yes, that sounds like something we should 
put on our kitchen, like um, <laughs> in 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 some crocheted or you know sewn homily form. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give Mike the last word, but here here are my final thoughts. Uh, I think that this is one of the only films that I can think of that can truly be defined as both an exploitation film and an art film, a disreputable, grimy, drive-in movie, and a film of tremendous beauty and artistry. There's not a lot of things that can absolutely nail all of those descriptors and categories, but this movie does. And I will leave you with just like a quick rundown of some of this movie's place in history if you needed to hear it. Wes Craven based, I think, you know, Mike mentioned this before, but Hills Have Eyes would not exist if it wasn't for this movie. Uh, Ridley Scott cited it as a inspiration for Alien. Rob Zombie, obviously, has said it's critically important to his his work. Um, this was a movie that the year after it came out, we're not talking 30 years later, it needed to be rediscovered. It played at the, the Cannes Film Festival's Director's Fortnight and the London Film Festival. Entertainment Weekly had its sixth on its list of the top 50 cult films. It's been listed as the greatest horror film of all time on a number of various magazine article, website polls, and, and so on. In a total film poll, it was selected as the greatest horror film by a judging panel that included John Carpenter, Wes Craven, and George Romero. Mm-hmm. So it is generally very much the consensus choice for the greatest horror film, regardless of genre of all time by list after list after, after list. So I think that we're not, unfortunately for us, I guess, as people that like to be on an Island or point out things like terrified as, or Oculus as these are great movies. Well, you know, we're, we're not alone on this one, guys. Like, this movie is generally the consensus favorite for the greatest horror film of all time. And um, I'm not going to disagree with it. Mike, go ahead. Take us out. Uh, just to say that uh, this is an important film, not only to horror as a genre, but also to cinema in, in American cinema and cinema as a whole. It bespeaks the egalitarian aspect of art cinema as an art, but art, whatever you might call it, that the fact that this project that financed by the mob, (laughs) uh, wrung out of the literal blood, sweat and tears of an independent production in rural Texas, uh, this movie that should be rated X, that is, you know, in many ways the exact opposite of what would be considered to be good by any you know artistic idea of you know what you know an Academy Award winning movie you know X Y Z is considered considered by many to be like an extremely excellent movie. I I think bespeaks 
so much about uh, this film, but also you know just cinema as 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 a medium. You know the fact that like this is literally like the 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 comeback kid that could. You know this is the you know this is Rocky. This is the kid from the the sewers, from the the gutter, from the street. You know that you can make an excellent movie no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstance, no, even no matter what movie you're making. Just make a good movie. It's entirely possible. And that was, I, I love this movie for so many reasons on so many levels, and that is just one of them. So I, I would recommend I, – I, I can't imagine a scenario in which someone is listening to this podcast for like hours on end and they have never seen this movie. So I'm not going to be like, oh, you watch a beer. <laughs> but, but I would have to say that uh, if you haven't watched in a while – Give it another look and um, perhaps even look at some of the sequels and see um, uh, how some of them uh, succeed, perhaps not succeed. But also, I would say that this, you know, this movie is like one of those where it's on par with like Evil Dead, uh, Citizen Kane. I, I'm going to go there. I'm going to say Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Citizen Kane are in the same place. Where it's lightning in a bottle, lightning in a jaws, you know, name it or the one, you know, one in a million, one in a billion. Nobody else could have ever made this kind of movie, movie, and that's one of these, you know. So, anyway, I like to end on saying, on a situation like that, that go out and tell one person that may not have heard about it or may not have seen it. Go watch this movie. That's that's King how Kong. you King Kong. King Kong is another yeah. one. Yes, Let's, one in a billion movies. What what are those? You know, pay Nosferatu. it pay it forward. Your your niece, your nephew, the guy at right. work who's like, but I like The Conjuring. What else is out there? You know, like just find somebody if you're listening to this and we're preaching to the choir, and go out and and you be the person that introduces the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to somebody new. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. I know we've enjoyed talking about this movie so much. And uh, we look forward to talking about other movies in the future. But uh, this one was special. That's for sure. Until next time, adios. Adios.